Uh, Hey, if you have your Bible, uh, go ahead and find Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. While you're finding Ephesians chapter 2, just a shameless plug, I got a little bit of a cough, so if uh, everything's good, but if I just start coughing... Oh, what is that called? It's called something. Uh, A mistake is what it's called. Uh, It is just to say, I will try to catch my mic if I get to coughing so that I'm not like blowing everything up. But just to say, I'm okay. Um, No, while you're finding Ephesians 2, let me show you. I, I love weddings. I don't know about you. I love going to weddings Uh, I love being a part of weddings. I love seeing all of the kind of pomp and circumstance of weddings. Now, obviously, you can like way overdo it, but I love what what weddings stand for. Um, And as a pastor, I get the privilege to officiate weddings, and I love officiating weddings because I love to help brides and grooms recite their vows. I love to do that because they have no idea what they're saying. Like, from this day forward, I vow to to be your husband as long as we both shall live, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And they're like, yes, I believe this. I love you. And you're like, you have no idea what you're saying. Right? So so we, as, as people who go to weddings, we've heard those kinds of vows before. And, and brides and grooms who come together to be married they, of course, have an understanding of what they're saying, but they don't know what they're saying. And if you would talk to someone who's been married for 30, 40, 50 years, they might say the same thing about me, right? I'll be married for 10 years coming up in May, and they might look at me and go, yeah, you have no idea what you're saying. Because over time, we start to experience and comprehend the depth and the richness and the difficulty of the commitment that we've made as husbands and wives. This covenant commitment will be clarified over time. So it will be seen as even more beautiful than the day we actually made our vows. So I love weddings because when I hear someone make vows, I'm reminded of my own vows. I'm reminded of what the commitment that I've made to my wife and how, oh, I know it, but I didn't know it. I understood, but I didn't understand. I was committed to this, but I didn't know how committed I was going to have to be. Over time, our faith is much the same way. It grows and grows. It doesn't change. It's not like our faith in Jesus becomes faith in something else. It's not like we believe the gospel and then we find out that we didn't really comprehend it at all, but we grow in our understanding of what we were confessing when we were saying that we believe in Jesus, when we asked him to forgive us our sins, when we asked him to rule as the Lord of our life. We knew what we were saying, but we didn't know what we were saying. And this is what Paul's doing in our text this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, He's answering the question, what happened? What happened? When you became a believer, when you were brought to be in Christ, what was going on? Maybe in your mind, all you knew was, I am a sinner and I need a savior. And Jesus is the son of God 
who offers life instead of death. And I want to believe in him and turn from my sins. Praise God. You believe, you confess, you understand the gospel. But Paul's saying, let's, let's peel back the curtain a little bit and see what's going on. And to answer, he moves us from where we were to what God has done and now to where we are. So let's start our time together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we are grateful that we get to come before you today, that we get to gather together as your people, that we get to open your word and hear from you. And I pray this morning as we see with greater clarity what it means that we have been saved by grace through faith. You would open our eyes to behold your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, your love, your holiness. Lord, we want to see you because we know that as we behold you, we are being changed. You're changing our minds. You're changing our hearts. You're changing everything about us to be more and more like Jesus. And that's what we want. So Lord, I pray for these students that they would be engaged in your word, that anything that comes from me that is not of you would be quickly forgotten, that we would all be transformed by your truth this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the title of the message this morning is By Grace Through Faith. By Grace Through Faith. And, and for many of us, this passage is really familiar, right? Most of us have probably memorized at some point in our life, Ephesians 2 verse 8, but there's a lot going on in this passage. And so, like I said earlier, we have to start with where we were before we can understand with greater clarity where we are now. So if you're taking notes this morning, our first section, verses 1 through 3, is our old state. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians in Ephesus, and he's saying, this is what your old state was like. This is what you were like before Jesus. You were dead and doomed. You were dead and doomed. I mean, verse one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Talk about easing us into the bad news. You know, like Paul doesn't seem to have any bedside manner here talking about, hey, there's, I got some news I need to share with you. Maybe you want to sit down. He's like, no, hey, you're dead. You need to know that, that without Christ, apart from his work in your own sin, you are dead. And dead people don't do much. They're dead. Notice he says in verse 2, this is the way you once walked. So he's describing all of our former way of life. Whether you are raised in the church, whether you have never been to church, whether you have been in a place where the gospel is very common, whether you've been among an unreached people group, no matter where you are, what time period you're in, if you are a human being after the fall, this is you, dead. 
which alerts us to this big idea. There are only two ways to be in this world, dead or alive. Dead or alive. There is no in-between. There's, there's no in-between. You're either dead in your sin or you're alive to God. And if we're to get anything close to a glimpse of the reality of our salvation, of what God has done for us, the stunning miracle that it is, we need to take a sober look at who we were before Christ. And if we're honest, maybe for some of you, who you are because you've not yet trusted in him. My hope and my prayer is that today would be a day of good news, of gospel truth for all of us. But Paul's showing us, he needs to show us where we were or where we are. And he says, you have followed the course of this world. In other words, you and I were experts at listening to the influences of a broken creation. You and I loved following the ways of sin. You and I followed the prince of the power of the air, Paul says, who is the devil. The one who masquerades as an angel of light. The one who has some kind of power in this world and over the authorities of this world. And it leads us all to disobedience. In fact, Paul calls us sons of disobedience. That's our nature. That's our heritage. That's our inheritance. Disobedience. Sin. And before, he says, we've all lived, notice, the passions of the flesh in verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of the flesh. What does that mean? It means that you and I live according to our desires. So, Day by day, you and I go throughout our lives and we're not asking ourselves the question, what do I think is the best decision to make? We are living as an answer to a question that we often don't even ask ourselves, which is, what do you want? What do you want? So, so normally, in the normal rhythm of life, you're making Tons of decisions every day, and you're not stopping before you make either, each one of these decisions and going, what would be the wisest decision to make in this moment? Let me consider the options. You're not even asking the question. You're living as though whatever you do is going to fulfill your desire. What do you want? All of us lived according to our desires, and our desires were no good. He says it like this, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind. So some of our desires lead us to just do. We hear something, we are influenced by something, we're tempted by something, so we just do. We lash out, we disobey, we commit sin, we lie, we steal, we hate, we gossip, and on and on we can go. Other desires... Maybe not desires of the body, but desires of the mind lead us to manipulate. We get really good at displaying a fake, a fake version of ourselves to be liked or respected or uh, trusted so that we can get what we want. We, we don't put forward a, a, a version of ourselves that's actually virtuous we put forward a version of ourselves that's likable so that we can actually get what our hearts want. 
In other words, we are all con artists in our sin. We are all fake in our sin. Which leads Paul to say in this next phrase that we are all by nature children of wrath. Our sin will be met by the justice of a holy God. That's a truth that every person has to wrestle with. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done or left undone, what religion you follow, how faithful of an attender of church you are, what your level of knowledge is of the Bible, whether you are a Christian or not, your sin will be met by the justice of a holy God. Every evil thought, every wicked deed, everything we were commanded to do and left undone, everything we did that we should not have done, it all will be dealt with by God. And this is not an isolated issue, right? This isn't like Paul getting on to the church in Ephesus as though there's somebody special. Paul says that this was our state, verse 3 at the end, like the rest of mankind. This is a universal problem. So if all of us are condemned in our sin, if all of us are dead and doomed, if all of us are unable because of our death to do anything, then we need someone greater. We need someone outside of our condemnation to make things right. We need God to step in. And that leads us to verse four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our old state is one of death and doom. But God meets us in our death, in our condemnation, number two, with mercy and love. Mercy and love. Verse four, one of the most important phrases in all the Bible in light of our sin, in light of our depravity, in light of our condemnation, our hopelessness before a just judge, we read, but God. The God of holiness and justice, the God whose wrath burns hot against wickedness and sin is at the same time rich in mercy, rich in love. So while we were dead in our sins, 
God made us alive. So when death is met with the love and mercy of God, death is put to death. Life comes forth from the God of the living. He makes the dead alive. And this means that no matter where you've been or what you've done or what's been done to you or what you think, you are eligible for the love of God to put your death to death too. There's no one in the orbit of your life who is too far gone in their sin to be radically changed from death to life by his great love and great mercy. Because there's only two ways to live. You're either dead or alive. There's not dead and then more dead. There's not dead and then too far dead. So God makes dead sinners alive, he says, together with Christ. So how does he make us alive? He brings us to Jesus. God brings our sin and our death to Christ, to the Lord Jesus. God somehow unites us to Christ. And when we're united to Christ, it brings us to life. There's this great story in Isaiah chapter 6. You don't have to turn there where all throughout the Old Testament, there's this rule that if something is clean, then it's, it's clean. Uh, it, you can use it, you can handle it, you can use it for food, or you can use it for cooking, or you can use it for normal everyday things. But if it becomes defiled in some way, it becomes unclean. And you shouldn't use it. You have to clean it or wash it or put it under some kind of ritual or don't use it for a couple of days. But if something unclean touches something clean, then the clean thing also becomes unclean. And this is just the the rule of the Old Testament law. Unclean things make clean things unclean. And yet in Isaiah chapter 6, there's this vision that Isaiah has where he's standing before the Lord. He sees the glory of God in heaven and he is petrified. Because he knows, he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. My eyes have seen the King. So he knows what he deserves in this moment is wrath. What he deserves in this moment is judgment. What he deserves in this moment is the death that he knows to be true of himself. And yet, in this, in this instance, in this scene, an angel takes coals from the altar and places that coal on Isaiah's lips and says, See, you, your sins have been atoned for. You've been cleansed. And in this moment, we see for the first time that something clean has made something unclean clean. So you fast forward to the gospels. You fast forward to the stories of Jesus where Jesus goes and talks to a leper. And Jesus says to this leper, this person with this skin disease, this person who is unclean. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And Jesus says, the the leper says, Lord, if if you can, if you will, make me clean. And Jesus touches him. And he's healed. 
And all throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, we see this radical shift that Jesus, the one from heaven, the one who is divine, the one who is clean now and forever, when unclean things touch him, they become clean. And that's what Paul's getting at right here. This whole work, you and I bring our sin and our death to Jesus, and we're made clean. Our death is taken away, our sin taken away, cleansed by Christ, filled now with life. And this whole work, this whole process of salvation is by grace. For by grace you have been saved. Verse 5. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We just receive the call to come into the fellowship of God and live. And it gets better than that. We don't just have our death removed. He raises us up, Paul says. Verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is not just salvation from the wrath of God. It's salvation to the new life that we have in Christ. It's not just salvation from hell. It's salvation towards joy, towards life. But why? Like, why does God save anyone at all? If if we just read that all of mankind was dead in their trespasses and sins, in their disobedience towards God, and were justly condemned in their sin. So so God would still be God if no one was saved. God would still be God if everyone came under his wrath. God would still be exactly who he is if none of us were given life. So why does he do this? Because salvation is costly, is it not? The son of God had to come to earth, put on flesh, dwell among sinful people, be subject to mockery and ridicule and persecution and a faulty arrest and a false trial and a scourging and a cross. Why? God would still have been God. That's the beauty of verse seven. So that when you see that phrase in your Bible, so that you are getting the reasoning why God is doing something. So that, or for this reason, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So here's why. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are alive in your faith instead of dead in your sin, then you exist for all eternity as the object of God's love and the display of his grace and kindness. So so get this, your existence 
will lead creation to worship the Lord. The the fact that you exist as a redeemed sinner will lead the universe to worship. Your life in Christ will be the fuel that fires the praise of the new creation because the universe and all that is in it will in some way see you and be filled with the wonder of this thought. Isn't God kind? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he wonderful? And that includes the hearts of you and me right here. That's not just a future promise. That's a present reality. You and I can look around the room and say, isn't God kind? That he would save you, that he would save me. You exist so that God might be known for who he is. Not merely just and righteous, but merciful and loving. So we were dead and doomed, but God sent his son to bring us into his eternal life, showing his great love and his rich mercy. And now you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, have been saved by grace. And that leads us to who we are now, alive and walking a new course. Look at verse eight. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if our old state was death and doom and that old state was met with mercy and love from God, then our new state is now alive and walking alive and and walking. This is probably the most familiar section of our passage to you this morning. And maybe many of you, like I said before, have perhaps memorized Ephesians 2 verse 8. That's a great one to have hidden in your heart. But there's a lot here to unpack. So let's fly through this last section together. Paul says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. So the, the, the reason that you're saved is grace. That's Paul. That's, that's God's reasoning. I, I, he's gracious. But the way that you're saved is faith. Does that make sense? The the reasoning why you're saved is grace. The way that you're saved is faith. And this, your salvation, Paul says, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Remember, you're dead. So you're not like coming to the negotiation table and being like, all right, Lord, I have all these sins, but I also have like so many followers on Instagram. So what does that get me? right? It's like getting like tickets at the arcade and thinking like you have anything at all, but like you can get a gumball. Like you have not, you've brought nothing to the table. The only thing you bring to the table of your salvation is the sin for which you need to be saved. It's a gift of God, Paul says. So then that means that faith If the the way that I'm saved is faith, 
and it's a gift of God, then faith is a gift of God. You with me? I don't create faith. I don't just drum up faith in my life. I don't, rec- I don't do anything other than receive it. It's a gift. It's not the result of works. I don't earn faith. Faith is the opposite of works. So let's get our doctrine straight. Our faith or our belief is in Christ. So when I believe something or when I have faith in something, I have faith in something. There's an object to my faith, right? I hope that Auburn will win. Okay, what is your hope in? What is your faith in? They're winning. That's the object of your faith. So my hope in my, for my salvation, my hope for my life is in Jesus. He's the object of our faith. And the Father gives us that faith. It's the gift of God. So the Father gives us the gift of faith so that we might believe in Christ. He's the source of our faith. That's the Father. Jesus, the Son, is the object of our faith. Now, you don't have to turn there, but listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 3, Paul says this, No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not like anybody on the planet can't use the words Jesus is Lord. But the point that Paul is making is, I cannot confess my faith in Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So if God the Father is the source of my faith, he's the one who gives it to me, and the Son is the object of my faith, he's the one I'm putting my hope in, then the Spirit of God is the one who brings that gift, exchanging my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He says, here's the gift. I'm applying this gift to you. And as soon as I receive this gift, my heart wells up and says, I believe. I believe. He's the one who brings us the gift of God. So what I hope you see is, like in previous weeks, and we're going to see this all throughout the book of Ephesians, God, the Holy Trinity, is inseparably working for you and for your salvation. If God is giving you the gift the Spirit is going to deliver it. And if the Spirit is going to deliver that gift, then the Son will never fail you as the object of your faith. And if that's true, then we have no room to boast. We have no room to boast. We we didn't do anything to earn this. When we look at our friends or loved ones who are not believers, it's not because we're smarter than them. It's not because we're more moral than them or anything like that. It's the fact that they have not received the gift of God. What separates those who are dead from those who are alive is, have they received the gift of faith? It's nothing we can earn. And all throughout the world, I heard um, David Platt say this about religions, but it's not just about religions. It's about anything we put our hope in. The gospel stands in great contrast to every other story the world tells us. 
Because the story that the world tells you and tells me, or the story that other religions tells you or tells me is, there's this mountain before us. And at the top of that mountain is the satisfaction of all of our hopes and desires. If you're thinking about religion, God is at the top of the mountain. If you're thinking about the ways of the world, money is at the top of the mountain. Um, Fame is at the top of the mountain. Success is at the top of the mountain. And your purpose in this life is to get from where you are at the base of the mountain to the top. And yet, no matter how hard you try, you will never reach the top of the mountain because, a little piece of information, your legs are broken. And your back is broken. And your arms are broken. You are broken at the bottom of this mountain. And and the, the story of the world is, hey, just work hard and come up here and you'll get everything you want. And the blindness that the God of this world, the devil, places over unbelievers is to convince them that if they just keep struggling and wiggling at the bottom of that mountain, they'll make it to the top and they never will. But the gospel says that God sees us at the bottom of this mountain and he steps down and he travels from where he is to where we are and says, I want you with me. And he puts us on his back and carries us to the top. That's Christianity. That's the hope that we have, that God is the one who does the work. And since we are saved, Paul writes now, we are God's workmanship. He's working on us. In fact, he says we're created in Christ Jesus. That means we're new creations. We're no longer dead in our sin. We're alive to God, created in Christ Jesus. That's exactly what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old death and doom has passed away. Behold, the new alive and walking has come. So now we are alive. Now we are able to do what God has called us to do. The good works that Paul says here in verse 10, that he's prepared for us. So now, instead of walking the course of this world in verses 1 and 2, We're walking the path that God has prepared for us. The course of verses 1 and 2 has been replaced with the course of verse 10. So, verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Not you. It's not so that you should walk in them. It's so that we should walk in them. Remember, Paul, this whole time, doesn't have an individual in mind. So if you read this text as though he's just talking to you, you're missing his audience. He's talking to us. And he's saying, God has done this in your lives so that you together might walk together. God has made us alive and he's given us a task. So we grow. We grow together as a display of his grace and kindness. We proclaim 
his love and mercy. We praise God who saves us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do it all by his grace and through the gift of faith. And as we do those things, we will come to see more and more clearly. And we will be a model for others to have their eyes open to see more and more. Isn't God kind? Isn't he gracious? And as we do those things together, you will look back on those moments when you first started to follow Jesus and you'll say, I knew what I meant, but I had no idea. I mean, I knew that I was a sinner, but I had no idea how sinful sin is. I knew that God was kind and he was gracious, but I had no idea how amazing that God would save me, that he would come down the mountain and carry me back. That's our story. That's where we were. That's what God has done. And that's where we are today. So let's pray. And we'll talk about where we go from here in our groups together.